This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us today and for following us on Instagram and Facebook. And we're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis and my co-host is my adorable service dog, Lovey. And we're thrilled to be with you to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today we're going to be visiting with Dr. James Ha. And Dr. Ha is a certified applied animal behaviorist. He's also an expert witness and a lecturer with experience working with dogs, cats, and parrots. And Dr. Ha is going to talk with us today about his 30-year career in animal behavior teaching, research, consulting, and his expert witness service. So come right back after these quick messages as we welcome Dr. Ha to the show. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. You know that feeling when you go to clean the litter box and it's a complete disaster? Yeah, we've got you covered. Introducing World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the advanced litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. Zero Mess combines the concentrated power of corn with super-absorbent plant fibers. Translation, scoop once and you're done. Find it at a pet store near you and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. We're so happy to have Dr. Ha with us today. Hello, Dr. Ha, and welcome. Hello there. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, we're so excited to hear all about the cool scientific work that you're doing. So first of all, Dr. Ha, tell us, what is a certified applied animal behaviorist? What is it that you do? Well, basically, there's a new field. Animal behavior in general as a science is is a fairly well-developed field since the time of Darwin. And But mostly it has, over the century uh, and a half, it has really studied wild animals. And it's really studied the evolution of behavior in, you know, tigers and lions and birds. And and you see the stuff on National Geographic and NOVA and Discovery Channel. But really recently, last 10 or 15 years, we've really developed sort of a sub-science. And we call it applied animal behavior. And it's basically saying... We've learned so much about the behavior of animals, genetics and physiology, hormones, learning in the wild and in their natural world that we can now should be able to take that information, that knowledge, and really apply it to solving problems in the, in the animals in the world around us, you know, livestock, captive animals, and of course, companion animals, dogs and cats and, and all the different kinds of companion animals we have in our world. So it's really taking animal behavior, modern animal behavior science and applying it to human animal interactions, issues, behavior issues, and and so on. The certified applied animal behavior simply means that I have 
been through a certification procedure, some kind of verification of credentials and experience in, in specifically in applied animal behavior by our professional organization. So we have a professional scientific organization and they have a panel of experts who have reviewed my experience and background and, and basically have said, yes, you are qualified to do this kind of work. It requires a PhD. There's a level of a master's degree as well, a, a lower level certification. And we're very comparable and work very closely with a similar certification for board certified veterinary behaviorists. The, the DVMs, the behaviorists, uh, the, the veterinarians developed about the same time, developed a similar certification program. So, so you can say this is a person who has the background, the up-to-date background to help me, either as a DVM with behavior background or as a PhD with behavior background. That's so cool. Well, how did you start working with more domestic type animals and taking that all that information that was learned from the wild, from animals in the wild? How did you start using that with domestic or, or livestock animals that you mentioned? I have to say the, the inspiration really was my PhD advisor. It was a guy named Dr. Phil Lehner. He's retired now, lives, lives up on Flathead Lake uh, at Colorado State University at the time. And I was getting my PhD in animal behavior, working with wild animals in the field, in the mountains. And he is one of the truly first founders of this discipline, very active in developing certification program and so on, really defining this new field of applied animal behavior. And he was one of the very first people to have a, uh, an in-home practice on the side. He was a faculty member, but, you know, evenings and weekends, he took veterinary referrals and he went into people's homes. He did a house call and he analyzed the situation. He really took a look at what the owners were doing, what the animal was doing, characteristics of the behavior of the animal, and, and helped them find solutions, you know, across a wide range of options. He taught some of this in the very early days, and we're talking the 80s. He taught some of this at the veterinary school at Colorado State University, and I got involved with that. You know, it was a matter of, hey, he's going and going to go on one of these house calls, and did I want to come along just for the experience? And I said, what the heck, and became fascinated with it. It's really rewarding work, and, and so when I moved to my I got my PhD and moved to my faculty position at the University of Washington back in 1990. Soon thereafter, I sort of cast around and said, what else do I want to do? And do I want to try getting back into this work? So I basically built my own practice here in the Pacific Northwest, but very much following in, in his footsteps. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like you had a very similar path to him. And how do you work with individuals to modify problem behaviors with their dogs? What does that look like? Give us a typical scenario. Well, it's it's very much getting usually getting referrals from veterinarians. People contact us, said, you know, my veterinarian has given me your name and says that there's no medical issue. We don't practice veterinary medicine in my case because I'm a PhD, not the DVM type. And so I want the animal to have a good, clean health screening by a veterinarian. So I work closely with a veterinarian to say this is not a disease process. That's their bailiwick. Then they hand the case to me and I do a house call. I think it's very important to do do this as a house call, not in my office or clinic or something like that, where I actually see the dog or cat or rat or parrots, but dog or cat's behavior in the home. That's their natural environment. And I want to know how does the animal behave, how comfortable do they act, and how do they interact with the owners in their natural home. So I go to the home. It's probably an hour sometimes less, sometimes more, of interview, just a background interview. I need to know everything about the history, 
of that animal and the relationship with the owner. So you sort of have to pump them for a lot of information, but all those bits of information tell me something. Assessment of the of the pet, assessment of the dog, assessment of the cat. There's some standard assessments and tests and things I'm doing even while I'm talking to the owner. And then we switch over and I diagnose what I think is, is going on. And then we spend another usually hour, hour and a half, working on developing a behavior modification plan. And uh, I give that to them later in writing. I refer them to trainers. I can come back in and help. But we really put together a plan, which could range anywhere from just managing the situation, using a muzzle. You know, the old joke, if the dog is reactive around children, keep the dog away from children. (laughs) You know, it may be as simple as that. Or a second possibility is actually active kinds of training. And we have some specialized training techniques that we use to deal with things like anxiety, aggression, and things like that. And then the third component is to go to medication. And we have a lot of behaviorally active medications that that I'm very well experienced with using. And so I'll go back to the veterinarian to work with them about medication issues. And so we have three directions to go and we combine those into the best plan for that owner and for that that pet. About how long does it usually take for you to work with with an individual and their animal? The initial consult, uh, which is what I call that initial visit, uh, for dogs, usually, uh, let's say between two and three hours, two and a half hours is what I say, tell them to prepare for. It can go quicker if it's real obvious. The owners pick up very quickly on what's going on. It can take four hours in some cases. Cats, uh, there's a fewer options, a um, little less to talk about. So those usually take maybe an hour and a half to two hours, something like that. Interesting. Well, I know you've done so much research throughout your career, and you've done some work with assistance dog organizations. Can you tell us about that and what you're working on? Yeah, mostly what I've been working on with uh, assistance dogs has been with an organization called the Courthouse Dogs Foundation. I really met the founders, Celeste and Ellen, of Courthouse Dogs when they contacted me looking for some help from the university in doing some research and getting some advice, getting some real up-to-date, you know, modern dog canine science advice for their for their group. And so I have sort of become a scientific advisor to that group. And along the way, of course, I'm learning a lot and giving advice to a number of assistance dogs, ADI organizations that are providing these courthouse dogs. And and this is an organization which is working hard, both from a legislative point of view, as well as funding and, and so on. To, to bring assistance dogs, really highly qualified dogs, into the justice system. And for instance, to be used as therapy or comfort dogs with assisting children who have to give testimony, but uh, even broader than that. And so that's really been my role has been to work with and do a lot of education. I'm a regular presenter at their annual symposium where I talk about the latest science, for instance, of assistance dogs and their relationship to the handlers and what is the kinds of effects, positive and negative, that we see in a relationship between a dog and a client or someone that's being assisted. So I try to help out with some of that. What are some of the negative consequences that may be occurring, stress that may be occurring on assistance dogs? And there's research. Animal be- Applied animal behaviors have done research on that. And I think a lot of my role has been to help translate that science and numbers and and statistics and things to the handlers, to the breeders, to the people who can make best use of that information. Yeah, that's wonderful. 
you touched on stress. You know, that's a huge topic that we've been thinking a lot about and talking with other handlers about their dogs, especially dogs that do medical detection, different types of detection work, but they seem, you know, to be under so much stress. Can you share with us some of the the latest science that you're aware of regarding stress and assistance dogs? Yeah, um, this is something that I, I present on fairly frequently and have, have a number of you know, public presentations that I offer and, and have traveled around giving. There's very little science. However, it is becoming a big concern, I would say. And so there's some work out that's beginning to indicate that in some of these cases, these assistance dogs are exhibiting some stress and chronic stress can lead to illness problems, immune system problems, and so on. I think some of the nicest work, limited though it is, we need to fund so much more good science, more of this kind of work to confirm these things. But there have been some interesting findings coming out, for instance, about periods of time that assistance dogs should be working. And here we're talking about, say, a courthouse dog or therapy dogs or something like that, where they're actually finding that there's a real trade-off in the length of time that they're working versus, you know, sort of the total number of hours in a day and the breaks. And in fact, what they're finding is that dogs, assistance dogs are less stressed by remaining in the same situation longer than by going into a number of different situations. So when you move a dog during a day, let's say, and they spend 15 minutes here and then they're 15 minutes there and then they're half an hour in there and then they're 15 minutes here, you add up to say, let's say, I don't know, five hours of contact time during that day, that's more stressful than being in one situation, sitting in a courtroom or something with a child for two hours and then two hours and then, you know, another hour. That's less stressful. That's three different environments that they're in. And that is even the same number of hours, but less stressful because it's not so much the duration, but the number of different challenges that they have to meet each day for that sort of thing. You know, uh, sometimes intuitive, sometimes not intuitive. And as I say, we need much more work, but hopefully some of this kind of research gets out to the people who are really, you know, scheduling these dogs and handling these dogs and using these dogs. And, and hopefully that can help begin to reduce some of the, of the chronic stress that we are seeing in some of these situations. Absolutely. I love that and surely hope that that funding will present itself for that because just in my own experience of watching my dogs over the years and and watching Lovey because I can tell when she's getting stressed out when she starts to shake or she starts to lick or she starts, you know, some behavior that just I know just from living with her that that she's exhibiting stress and giving her time to play and and have that downtime so that then she can regain and you know and that she's and reduced but I think that's wonderful that you're starting to really look at that how would you you mentioned also about the the human animal bond which is just such a a big thing that everybody's always asking me about living with an assistance dog for so long about how do I describe that how would you define the human animal bond well I think what I would do is is the very first thing I would do is distinguish the human animal bond and there is some kind of relationship and, and desire to be in touch with nature and animals and so on. But I would distinguish that with the human-dog bond. And I think that the data is now becoming very apparent. As again, limited. It's, it's very difficult to get funding for any kind of canine science. 
But we're beginning to see, find the data that really says that the relationship, the behavioral, social, even hormonal, pheromone relationship between humans and domestic dogs is unique. And that what we talk about is the fact that dogs are by far been domesticated longer, that is living in close association with humans, 50,000 years, far longer than any other domesticated animal. And really, domestic dogs have had an influence on human evolution, and human evolution and culture, cultural changes, has had an influence, obviously, on the domestic dog, all the different breeds and the tasks we've bred them for and so on. And, but it's been a two-way street. And so I think that the, the evidence is clear that the relationship between humans and dogs is extremely strong, is unique. There's, we do not have a connection, an understanding of their body language, ability to communicate through odors with any other species of animal uh, on, the, on the face of the earth because of this long co-evolutionary relationship between humans and dogs. So there's something that's going on special between humans and dogs. There's also something between humans and animal, you know, in general and bonds with animals, but simply cannot, you know, be as strong, even, even cats cannot be as strong as, as that does the relationship with dogs. Cats have been domesticated for only a fraction of the same amount of time. So much less horses or, you know, anything else. So the human dog bond is fascinating. And we're really learning more, a lot more about that recently. Again, some really good science has come out to, to really show the effects that simply seeing a dog has on human blood pressure. And we've looked for a long time. And then it goes in the opposite direction. Same thing with, with the dog. And some of the, the most fascinating studies recently have looked simultaneously at both what's stressful about the relationship. We've looked at cortisol as a stress hormone for a long time, but now we're looking at the flip side, things like oxytocin, a social bonding hormone. So what if positive and negative effects can occur with you know, short-term and long-term contact between humans and dogs? And, and again, that's just something that I can translate down to the handlers, to the people who are working closely with these dogs. And I think it really, if nothing else, encourages the work. It's something that we want to, it's kind of information that I testify about before judges. You know, does this dog really provide a benefit to a, a young witness? And yeah, we now have the science that says, I mean, it has biochemical effects. You know, the dog, petting the dog, having the dog at that child's feet has effects and very positive effects and very long-term effects about that kind of a traumatic experience. So that's the kind of science that's beginning to come out about the strength of the human dog bond in particular. So awesome. Well, we are going to take just a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors, but want to definitely come back and continue this conversation about the human-dog bond. So come right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Hanukkah, the German shepherd that I rescued, was stinky, skinny, and scrawny, full of skin rashes and scratching. And I started feeding Kanika Dynavite, and he became such a happier, itch-free, stink-free dog that I dug deeper into the website. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. What if in addition to Dynavite, we do the raw beef and the egg diet and see what happens? Forget all these 50-pound bags, the formulated, extruded, processed cereal bits. 
that cost a ton of money anyways. This dog's as close to a wolf as you can get. They're carnivores with just the raw meat and the eggs and the dynavite and super omega on top of it. It just balances out his body and his mind and his spirit. It's, it's unbelievable. Hey, if you're thinking about rescuing a dog, you got to start them out on Dynavite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. And we're visiting today with Dr. Ha. And before the break, we were talking about the human-dog bond, which I just... It is so fascinating, and I love to hear about the science behind it, Dr. Ha, and especially as a person who's been partnered with an assistance dog for almost 25 years, I certainly appreciate this, and I'm mesmerized by this. So tell us a little bit more about what you've seen with assistance dogs and that bond. You touched a little bit on it about the courthouse dogs aspect, but could you talk a little bit more about it? Yeah, I think, you know, the the fascinating thing for me is is the degree of the of the bond, of the relationship. And what we mean by that really is that is that humans can to some extent, and of course it varies from person to person and and experience modifies it, learning experiences modify it, but really humans can to some extent read dog body language from birth, you know, and so this is reading the communication signals of another species. And I mean, we're not talking another species, a chimpanzee or something, you know, relatively evolutionary, closely related. I mean, we're, we're talking a bit different, you know, and we can read those signals naturally. Not only that, but we're starting to get information about we can, you know, dogs use scent so much. They use smell and they have their own pheromones. They communicate fear, anxiety, and so on through the smells that they give off that other dogs are detecting. And we're starting to get evidence that humans can detect those as well and react appropriately to them. And, and the flip side of that is that we have been able to co-evolve, that is to, to selectively breed dogs to be sensitive to humans. And, you know, you, you, you have these dogs now that can read human body language. This is a primate's body language. It's a very different kind of body language, but there's clearly evidence that dogs can read this body language and, again, react appropriately. Does your dog know how your, what your basic emotional state is? Does your dog know when you're sad? Does your dog know when you're happy? Absolutely. At least most dogs, most mm-hmm. breeds, you know, it uh, varies. And why do people love poodles so much? Poodles are the ultimate at being able to read human emotional states. They have gotten to the point, been bred to the point where they cannot read other dogs' emotional states very well. Poodles don't do well around many other breeds of dogs. 
because they don't communicate with the same language anymore. They poodles almost communicate better with humans than they do with with other dogs. And so it it varies from breed to breed and individual to individual. But it's it's truly amazing that it it's at the biochemical, the scent level, certainly the body language level that we are not even aware of consciously, but we are responding to our dogs at that kind of level. Yeah. Well, I know for myself and my assistance dogs, I have to be careful that I, if I get too excited or if I get scared, you know, I have to really be aware of how I'm responding to situations because lovey will react to that. And it, it's really amazing at how sensitive they are to that. And I wanted to ask you, how do you think breed and breeding impacts the success of assistance dogs? Oh, I think it has a, a huge effect. I mean, what we, we really have found is that about 50%, very roughly, but about 50% of behavior and temperament and predictability of behavior and learning ability and everything else is genetics. And about 50% is training and learning and experience and the effects of that traumatic situation the, the dog was in many years ago or whatever. And so it's, it's one of the, again, one of the main parts to a lot of my research and certainly to a lot of my education and public speaking is, is to make people aware that there are breed differences. We have now bred breeds of dogs that are more different from each other than coyotes and wolves are from each other. And so why do we expect necessarily that they're all going to get along well at an off-leash dog park? Uh, we talked about poodles and, and communication capabilities with other dogs. You get the miscommunication, that's where you can have problems. And so breeding makes a huge difference. That's where I have a lot of concerns about the use of some of these sort of therapy dogs and emotional support animals in delicate situations because we don't know what the breeding is and that puts into place a great deal of unpredictability. Plus, we often don't know what their their history is. They may have come from a shelter. We have no idea what their history, what things they've learned, positive and negative. We're more concerned about the negative, you know, and so there are huge unknown and we cannot discount how important genetics and early experience, previous experience with children or with men or with, you know, with darkness or you know, whatever is when we are trying to say something with any degree of certainty about an animal, and you can include humans, an animal's behavior. And so that makes those animals uh, much less predictable and perhaps appropriate for some situations, but not all situations. And where we get into the use truly of, uh, of assistance dogs and purpose-bred dogs and things like that is to give us that known background, that known history, both genetics history as well as experience in terms of early fostering and what they've been through, what they've been exposed to. And, and that, that completely changes the formula about how predictable or reliable those dogs are. So it, it plays, you know, the breeding and the, and the breed type and the genetics play a huge part in behavior as well as training, obviously, and experience. 
Well, I really appreciate you saying that because, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, why can't I just slap a vest on my dog and take it into public? You know, why can't I pass my dog off as a service dog? And it's for all those reasons (laughs) that you just said, you know, that people just don't understand the level of stress that these dogs are under and how much training and breeding and all of the genetics and early experiences, all of those things things into them to make them qualified to be out in public. And I was just yeah, wondering that's, about, that's, yeah, go ahead, That's please. exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's a major issue. I, th- I think it's a great concern of mine, not to say that, you know, there aren't dogs in shelters who qualify, could qualify after a lot of assessment, but they're going to be relatively rare. They're going to be very rare. Yeah. Yeah, as much as I want dogs in shelter to have that opportunity, but I get it. I get why that's hard. For It could be hard for them. It's not safe for them or it's it's cruel to them even if they don't have what they need genetically and, and experientially to be prepared because it, people just don't realize how difficult it is to be an assistance dog, you know, and, and what a, a highly qualified job it really is for these dogs because as I look at mine, I'm still amazed every day by how they cope and how they function to do their job. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Well, and what would you say when someone is placed with an assistance dog, what would you recommend that they do to develop an effective working relationship with that dog? I think, you know, this is something I think that the that the assistance dogs organizations do a phenomenal job at. You know, and this is something I've had to learn about, you know, as I've sort of gotten into this field. And and there are some folks who are far better qualified than I am to, to really talk about this. But it really boils down to interaction. It really, for me, it boils down to a lot of interaction, a lot of socializing together, spending a lot of time together, and then spending a lot of time together in different kinds of environments. And what you're fundamentally doing, and I would say that this truly is happening probably only between humans and dogs, not between humans and maybe and many other species at all. What's really happening is you're developing trust. And what trust means is it means that both halves of the formula are developing the ability to predict the other one. When my owner is taking me, my handler is taking me into this situation I know how they're going to respond, and I know how they're going to protect me. I know what they're going to need. I can predict their behavior and their needs, and it goes both ways. And the the handler is saying, oh, my God, I'm going into this situation, but I can trust that my dog is going to take care of me, do whatever's needed, you know, and that to develop that trust going in both directions takes time, and I think takes a lot of interacting in a lot of different kinds of situations. But again, you know, this is something that's very well-developed science with the assistance dogs organizations. And I, I think they really have developed a, a fantastic you know, programs for this kind of thing. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> it really is time. I know that first year, as I said, Lovey's my fourth dog. And that first year for every one of my dogs has been so crucial. And it is. It's spending so much time together in lots of different situations. And it's really learning how to trust each other and to let go and trust. And it's amazing because when I'm in a different situation, I see my dogs and they look at me. They want to see how I'm going to respond. If I'm going to freak out or if I'm going to be okay or, you know, what is my reaction going to be? 
And I have to do the same thing with them to really trust each other and to know that we're both okay. And it is a beautiful thing when that really is nurtured and honored, you know, with each other. So I really, really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I think it it really is. Those kind of relationships are the the pinnacle, the absolute peak of this 50,000 years of co-evolution of really influencing each other's evolution and culture. And, you know, humans Mm -hmm. were able to go to agriculture and and things like that because of the labor of dogs, the relationship with dogs and be protected. And, you know, it, it really influenced both species and the pinnacle of example of that kind of relationship is this, these assistance dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know we don't have much time left, but I did want to ask you, tell us a little bit about your work as an expert witness. Oh, you know, animal behavior is a relatively small field and in science, you know, in the big picture and all of science. And, And so I really got involved with, of course, originally dog bite cases. So most of the work I do is is acting as an expert witness in, in dog bite cases, but really my my campaign and as an educator really is to get better quality science into the hands of the of the legal process. I've heard too many bad witnesses, <laughs> you know, yeah. saying things, you know, testifying that the dog should have done this or could have done this or the owner should have done this or could have done this. That was simply false. You know, we don't have a lot of science, but we have some science. And that science, I think, needs to get out there to help us make better decisions uh, everywhere. And in this case, you know, in the legal system. And so I do, I have appeared on many, many, many cases, both criminal homicide cases, for instance, having to do with usually with dog tracking, civil cases, which are usually uh, dog bite cases and, and who pays the medical bills and so on. And then the third category is sort of at a slightly lower level is, is the dangerous dog cases and evaluating dogs as to whether they're dangerous. Uh, worked out uh, relationships with the local municipalities here very often where they will trust my evaluations um, as to whether, you know, it is a dangerous dog after a dog bite or a potentially dangerous dog. Can a dog be safe, be made safe, you know, and we will set up sometimes set up plans where they will drop the dangerous dog decision after a certain amount of time if the owners follow through with working with me and with my trainers and so on. So it's really a matter of getting more accurate science into the into the legal system. And I have had, again, had to, I'm not a lawyer, and so I've had to learn a lot. And I credit several local attorneys here who really have taken me under their wing and taught me the legal system and all about being an expert legal witness. It's, it's a fascinating sort of education to be, you know, get involved just like with assistance dogs world as this whole legal world. And so it's, it's been again, very rewarding because I, I think I've, I've been able to save some good dogs from euthanasia and made sure that there are some bad dogs that didn't go out there to bite again. And so, yeah. and, and then when you're doing the dog, the tracking and so on, it really has to do with just getting the good science out there. Well, it sounds like you are getting lots of good science out in the world, and we're really excited that you are doing that and that you're touching on all of these different topics. It's really amazing and very innovative work that you're doing, which is really cool. So before you go, tell our listeners if they want to get more information about you or if they'd like to work with you, how can they reach you, Dr. Ha? What's the best way? My faculty is I'm certainly listed on the University of Washington faculty website and, and my email is jcha at 
uw.edu. My private consulting company is Animal Behavior Associates of Washington, and there is an Animal Behavior Associates law.com uh, website, so you can search my name or Animal Behavior Associates of Washington and find my website there. And then I also teach an online program at the University of Washington. We've developed, a, my wife and I have developed a three-quarter certificate, University of Washington Certificate in Applied Animal Behavior. And so there's an educational opportunity for anyone who works. We have owners, vets, handlers, all sorts of people who want to learn modern animal behavior science and modern canine and, and feline science can take this a series of courses through the University of Washington. And so that's available through the, the University of Washington website. You can look for the certificate in applied animal behavior. Well, that is so awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Hahn. We hope you'll come back and tell us more about your work as you continue to make such great strides in this field. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd be delighted to come back and, and talk about some of my graduate students' work and research, active research that's going on, or, or any other kinds of topics you'd be interested in. Great. Well, we're going to take you up on that, Dr. Ha. Thank you so much. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. We love to hear from you. So please, let's stay connected. And you know that you can now follow Lovey on Instagram at Working Like Dogs and also on Facebook. So we love seeing your photos. And we love hearing about your working dogs and the incredible work that they're doing every day. So please stay in touch. And you can also email me at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. So thanks so much for being with us and take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.